So we found that co-op and DAO principles overlap so much in terms of values of principles, values, and there's such an alignment so that the, this legal wrapper that you find, particularly in the, in an LCA molds to what these decentralized communities, I would call them entirely autonomous because we know that that's not exactly a, a correct adjective, but in terms of decentralization, in terms of coordination around a treasury, around contribution and governance, they just, they really sit well on top of each other, kind of be even on a philosophical basis. So we've used the flexibility of LCAs to house decentralized communities, allow them to layer in DAO tooling, DAO styles of governance, and they fit, you know, pretty well, as I said, into kind of the organizational documents of an LCA. Nice. And what are the so from the perspective of of projects that want to take their DAO into a cooperative because they see it does align for them. Welcome to Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel. I'm excited today to have... Jackie Radabao and Yev Muchnik joining me from, say the name of your firm because I'm going to screw it up. Jason Lander PC. Thank you. And Launch Legal. Excellent. I'm excited to have them on because Jackie and Yev are doing a lot of work in the DeFi and crypto space, but focused on some unique organizational structures, but they're also heavily involved in a lot that's going on in the regulatory world. Um, and we'll get into all of that, but first of all, Jackie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us your background a little bit and how you ended up doing legal in the crypto world, if you could. Sure. So I am originally from Brazil. That's where I started my legal practice with corporate five, corporate practice, especially focused on corporate taxation, working with Fortune 500. I did a little bit of everything in between that nonprofit representation in Europe and public law some constitutional work as well before moving to the U.S. and doing community work with community-led cooperatives and similar shared ownership models with community-led trust and a variety of just stakeholder models. And joined Jason Weiner PC in 2021 now, January, so a little over a year and a half, just to deepen my expertise and especially to deepen my expertise in cooperative practice and social enterprise as well. And last summer, uh, Yev kind of recruited me to her uh, oh, it's her side. 
too hurtful. It's totally hurtful. I was a crazy under the world. Yeah, that was not my area of practice at all. And yeah, I was so excited about it and got me hooked. It took it took a couple months, it took some convincing, and then once was the but the bug bit me, it just uh, went downhill from there. <laughs> Jackie, but I, I'm pretty sure that he thought goal. Web3 activity was uh, fairly nefarious. <laughs> it's kind of the normal thing. To the other side, and she's like, oh, I get it. It was healthy. Yeah. She had her That's awesome that you have doing her part to recruit uh, into the dark side. I love it. All right, Yev, tell us your background. So I, I'm originally from Ukraine. I was born in Kiev. We immigrated to the U.S. in 06. Had been doing some really great work with DAOs and, and the efforts in, in Ukraine currently, which I can get into a little bit later. But I started as a baby lawyer at a traditional big law, international law firm, doing corporate and securities. Had a kind of a very linear path in terms of kind of work that I was doing, a lot of M&A, cross-border deals, private equity, hedge funds, and then became general counsel at a publicly traded tech company on the East Coast, and then moved over into the role of general counsel for a private aviation tech startup, Unicorn, down in South Florida, and then sort of moved into my own practice and found blockchain in 2016 and have never looked back. So... I've been working in this space for, for quite a while relative to how long it's been around. And it's been amazing to watch it mature. It's been amazing to be a part of the molding process on the regulatory side, on the industry side. I've seen a lot of companies do really well and a lot of companies or projects or groups do really poorly and, and flop. So, Wow. Um, I didn't realize you'd been in that long. Yeah. I have. Wow. I started, wow. I started during the ICO craze. So. Did a, did a client drag you in or were you already interested in some way? It's not, I mean, the clients came, but it's, it's a relatively like uninteresting story. Not that I like thought the clients <laughs> or pizza or anything like that, but I had a co-working space for lawyers in 2017 and started, it had extra space to utilize. So we started hosting a lot of meetups end of 2016, beginning of 2017. So, oh, and, and uh, that's, that's how people started corrupting your yeah. mind with the value of crypto. I get it. Okay, yeah. cool. So one day, I don't even remember when this was, I was sitting around and thinking about legal structures for some ideas that we were working on. And for some reason it popped into my head that all of my relatives on my dad's side are farmers in a little town called corn, Oklahoma spelled with a K. And I remembered the big co-op building in the center of town it was one of probably five buildings in the center of town. And it dawned on me, this, this whole thing that my family, all of my family members are part of was this, you know, cooperative organizational structure that I thought had some level of, I don't want to say regulatory screening, but had some, because they were a cooperative, had some level of less liability, I guess, in my head. Obviously, I'm not an attorney. And so I called you up and I said, hey, my relatives, we were, you were already representing us. And I said, you know, my relatives always had this cooperative, blah, blah, blah. And you said, well, just so happens <laughs> I'm working on cooperatives. And 
I know you all have been working on these together now for, for quite a while. And I know you've been working with projects in the space for quite a while. I guess we should start off with, you guys want to say a quick disclaimer of any kind to everyone before we get going? This Either of you? Advice. We are not your lawyers. <laughs> exactly. Okay, you good. Inquire or get more information, please build or reach out. But we are not providing any kind of legal or financial advice. Awesome. Okay. You should just talk to an attorney before you do anything, do anything about, around what they're exactly. talking about. Yeah. You should talk to Jackie or Yev before you do anything that they're talking about. That's good. Okay. And so since that time, we haven't rolled very quickly on our side, but since that time, you guys were already working in this space and doing work. You've been working with a lot of projects that want to explore cooperative structures. So I think the first thing to talk about is what is a cooperative? Because I would assume that most people don't have a bunch of relatives that are farmers. And so probably haven't had a ton of exposure to cooperatives or the life or didn't realize they did. So can one of you take kind of the lead on explaining cooperatives, what they are and how they function in general terms? Yeah. So cooperatives, essentially, they, they can be, you know, a statutory business entity like an LLC is a corporation that's, you know, a type of legal entity that's created by a statute or that's enabled by a statute. It can be a set of practices or governance. So it can be a way of doing business in that sense. It has a basic set of principles. So you, you're also, you're, this legal entity comes with an expectation of some underlying principles that guide the, the way of doing business. And so I think those are the, the three main things. Colorado has three different main statutes, Article 55 for agricultural and electric cooperatives, which are used to see Article 56, that cooperative corporations. So I type of entities can kind of form simply that way. And they typically don't allow investors or have some restrictions all around what investors can or cannot do as part of that. And then Article 58 cooperatives in a limited cooperative association in Colorado, that's what we've been using quite a bit. So a specific type of legal entity that adopted those principles and provide for the creation of cooperatives. And, um, and a, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. They have a, a, some characteristics that you see throughout. So often one member, one vote. So you have classes of members and within those classes, members, which will have access to you know, participation in governance and profit distribution. That's kind of important to the model, what we call patronage distribution or dividends. If I engage, I am expected as a member to engage with the entity. That's my patronage activity. That activity allows the cooperative to generate revenue, profits, and surplus. And that surplus is distributed to the members' patronage distribution. And this is something that is kind of baking in the DNA and expectation of what it means to be a cooperative. Outside of that, some tax specific provisions that are can be more beneficial, a mix of corporate and pass through taxation, but those are kind of really the, the big important things to to see and expect in a cooperative. And and a cooperative. So uh, from the from the the perspective of kind of the the underlying thesis of a cooperative is it's a group of people. My this is my personal experience, and so this may not be a broad enough definition, but it's a group of people coming together to utilize resources together or to sell things together that may not necessarily fit kind of the normal corporate structure, because let, let's take the farmers, for example, the farmers in a community gather together and join a cooperative. And that cooperative is used for buying and selling products, for storage of 
grain that is going to be sold for combining for better deals, equipment, or things that they may need. And so it allows them to share in the profits together and to help each other to kind of balance out the impacts of economic forces because they have bonded together to have more buying power and more selling power as a group coordinated together. Is that kind of the typical underlying thesis of all cooperatives or can it vary significantly? No, that's right. That's, that's pretty accurate. And that comes really from the basic principles of the cooperative movement is for the members by the members, right? So the members have a common goal, an enterprise, they want to buy together, they want to sell together, they want to provide services or acquire services or goods. So they just join to kind of benefit from the power of doing it together. And so the cooperative is really the means for doing that. And and that allows them for, for discounts, benefits, cost improvement, and profit sharing. Nice. But that's that's the way you describe this. It's a really good way. It's a stakeholder economy, right? So it's not it's not focused or driven by the profit generation. Obviously, you want it to be sustainable, but the goal is not to generate rep profits that can be distributed to people that are, you know, investors completely outside of that, the benefit of that enterprise, which is seeking favorable goods or services or just doing this together and benefiting from it together. Cool. And so, yeah, and so the, ultimately it's not about having a bunch of outside investors who've invested in a cooperative. It's about having everyone that's participating in the cooperative actually participating in it and also actually gaining from whatever the cooperative as a whole gains, right? Okay. And then Yev, how does this, how has this been applied in general terms to what DAOs and projects are doing in crypto and DeFi, or how are you guys applying it with, with the clients that you're working with now? I mean, I can see how a DAO is obviously could be set up as a cooperative, but how does that all shake out when it comes down to what we do and do not have in the DAO world right now? So we found that co-op and DAO principles overlap so much in terms of values of principles, values, and there's such an alignment so that the, this legal wrapper that you find, particularly in the, in an LCA molds to what these decentralized community, I will call them entirely autonomous because we know that that's not exactly a, a correct adjective, but in terms of decentralization, in terms of coordination around a treasury around contribution and governance, they just, they really sit well on top of each other, kind of be even on a philosophical basis. So we've used the flexibility of LCAs to house decentralized communities, allow them to layer in DAO tooling, DAO styles of governance, and they fit, you know, pretty well, as I said, into kind of the organizational documents of an LCA. Nice. and. What are the, so from the perspective of, of projects that want to take their DAO into a cooperative because they see it does align for them, what are the, what are the benefits that are driving DAOs to do this? I mean, what, what it, it gives them a legal structure, obviously it gives them recognition by primarily, I think the state of Colorado is, is where most of this is done because they have the best cooperative laws, but what are the, what are the goals for these, for these DAOs? In terms of what they get out of it. Yeah. I mean, I think you've hit a lot of, a lot of the, the kind of salient points, obviously DAOs that are unregistered, unwrapped in any kind of legal entity risk 
being or defaulting to general partnership and unlimited liability. But, if, you know, we've also found in with most of our clients in our practice that we're either dealing with one of, of a couple of varieties of that was ones that are like, you know, really decentralized, truly decentralized, have a lot of anons and are trying to find some way to protect all of these members. Or we're, we're more find that there's this kind of route to progressive decentralization, that there is still this kind of centralized, maybe council or like closer group of founders or contributors that are wanting to sort of set the framework and the bones, you know, for, for it to become a truly decentralized community or entity or you know, project or whatever it is. So we feel like the the LC, you know, allows for, for both of those options. That's cool. And are there, are I mean, there can they be anonymous members? I mean, there's still some requirements for, for kind of membership and keeping lists of members and their names and things like that. But there, there are other ways that we found we can creatively structure DAO co-ops where you can preserve your anonymous, you know, allow them to, to still patronize the co-op. Oh, that's interesting. And, and so there, I'm assuming there has to be at least one person registered as a member. I mean, to the government, they're not going to take as representatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So somebody has to put their neck out there and put their name on it. Ultimately in, in terms of kind of the regulatory impact of having a cooperative, are there benefits from a securities level perspective that protects them Are are the ones that you're working with? Well, let me re let me revert. First of all, how many of them come to you and they've already like gone down the road and they're exposed kind of at the level of unlimited liability partners and versus how many are actually kind of saying, oh, before we start this thing, we should probably discuss this with you guys. Are you finding that a lot of people are are like already progressed, have a product out, have a token out, and now they want to set up a cooperative around that? Or are you finding that you're getting a lot of people that are saying, let me see what I can do first? I mean, definitely in the beginning, you know, where it was, that was all the rage. Everybody wanted to set up a DAO and some had jumped into it like with blindfold. So there were a lot more of those kind of cases. And I would say now about 30 to 40% are at that stage and the rest are actually really pragmatic and, you know, researching co-ops and, and come to us actually with, with a whole lot of knowledge in hand. Nice. What they would like to do. Oh, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll add to that a little bit because I, I think we're seeing a, a pattern of kind of how that those DAOs are born and a lot of the ones that come to us, they don't, they're not investor driven, which mm. to some might come as a surprise, but they are, they usually have a kind of an entity, a founding entity that kind of takes a fairly important role. And so we're seeing quite a bit of that, that they, they want to develop a, a product and they want to decentralize. So we see a smaller number, I think, of those that are kind of, they are operating on Discord, have a product, they kind of like are running in and now they're calling us to just figure things out. That's a lot less. So there's, I think that, that is structured also. It's relevant to the timing of reaching out to an attorney like us, I think. That's awesome. And in terms of, so in terms of securities regulations, no, we've talked in the past that you all have talked about an NFT focus relevant rather than a, a, a token focus. 
Bitcoin focus. Are there benefits to a cooperative structure from a regulatory perspective, or is it still something where even if it's a cooperative, you're still going to file all the relevant things with the SEC if you're US-based or, or whatever country, I mean, you'd have to be US-based for the Colorado cooperative, but, or, or are there some, some available benefits? I would just uh, I'll stop you on thing. So you, you, you actually don't have to be US-based to set up okay. a Colorado co-op. So just one clarification on that. But cool. yeah, so the Colorado Securities Act actually exempts membership interest in a co-op from, from, from having to register as, as a security. So there's an exemption that's built into the state law. However, and this is the big however, you know, that only applies to patron members, not investor members. So if you purely have investors coming in, you know, it meets the Howey test, then you're still having to, to seek some kind of an exem exemption from securities registration, whether that's in the state itself or whether it's federally. But, you know, that's kind of a, a, a big caveat. But for, for members, and there's different types of members that can patronize you know, there's different ways to to have membership engagement to kind of fit into that and into to patronage and allows you to seek to to avail yourself to that securities exemption. We're testing out a couple of of novel ways of of raising capital through the sale of NFTs, which then represent your right to join the co-op as a member and and kind of relying on this fact that that those membership interests aren't actually securities. So, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be considered a, a derivative security or some kind of an option that you're going out and selling in, into the marketplace. So that's really, you know, something novel and we're testing it out. So we'll see how that goes, but it's pretty leading edge. So people, so essentially they are, they are doing a raise, but they're doing it because the people who are providing the funds are becoming members of the cooperative in some form. And they're buying an NFT, not as something that would be resold in an open market, but as a participatory role in the, in the cooperative. And as a member of the cooperative, can that the NFT then represent some form of a revenue stream like a normal cooperative would out of the services or products that the, that the DAO or the cooperative produces? Yeah, so we are also not co-op accountants, but I will give you <laughs> this bit on that. So yeah, since that represents kind of your your ticket to become a, a member in that cooperative, you know, at the outset, that sale might be kind of like a sale of goods, sale of property. But then once you do become a member, that can be transferred essentially as revenue, produced patronage revenue, right? It's, it's member-related revenue, and that just becomes kind of non-taxable at the cooperative level because it is member, again, member-based revenue and, and treated that way. And then kind of... It, isn't you, you have that accounting change from sale of goods to now it's a membership revenue. Got it. Okay. And so in terms of kind of the whole gotchas on the security side, because of the exemption in Colorado, you wouldn't fall, if you were providing revenue to holders of the NFTs, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily matter because of, I'm not, I'm not asking you for a strong legal opinion here, but in general terms, it wouldn't matter from that perspective because in the cooperative members are expected to have some potential gains from the, from the cooperative. Are there, are there issues though, still federally that you would have to deal with, even though you have the Colorado exemption exemption in your cooperative, how does the federal government treat cooperatives? Yev. <laughs> um, so primarily 
on the federal level, we rely on the Supreme Court case in United Housing versus Foreman. And so that sort of goes through the Howey test as well and really shows how in at, at the cooperative level, it's not relying on the efforts of others, but relying on, you know, the efforts of the, of the members. So it doesn't really meet that prong and, you know, wouldn't be necessarily deemed an investment contract. The federal level, while there's no, you know, specific statutory exemption or, or regulate in the, in the Securities Act, you do have case law from the Supreme Court that applies to that. Cool. And one of, go ahead. Right, I'm just not this. And one of the important aspects is kind of, it's a transferability. Membership in cooperative is not transferable. So when, even though, you know, you have that asset, it, the asset itself might represent membership, the transfer of it doesn't make you, one, we don't commit to, and we, you typically recommend the clients not to commit to making it transferable. In fact, we recommend that they make it not transferable. Um, and then if, if it does turn out to be transferred on a secondary market or else, however else, it's just, it doesn't mean that you automatically become a member of the cooperative, right? So your membership continues on you. It might make you not eligible because maybe that NFT or that digital asset was a requirement for membership. So it makes you not eligible at this point, but it doesn't transfer your membership. And that's part of the, some of the requirements at the federal level as well. Got it. And and from a participatory perspective, how how does the law deal with the level of participation of a given member or does it care about that participation, right? Is there like some minimal amount of stuff that I have to do as a member of the cooperative to to help the cooperative in order to participate and and be legit? There isn't, but there is like a reasonable expectation that the member can participate, right? So if you know you're going to have a class of members that you cannot reasonably expect them to be patronizing the entity, it's probably a stretch. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. And, I, and I'm sure people would love to stretch that. Okay. So this actually seems like a really reasonable solution. As long as a, as long as a cooperative is not going out, a DAO is not going out selling tokens as securities to the general public and, you know, trading on exchanges and listing on exchanges. If they maintain it this way and they they have a product or a service in the space that they've launched, then it's it sounds fairly reasonable that as many are there limitations to the number of members in it good. So you could theoretically have a lot of people in the cooperative and in the DAO who there's an expectation in some way that they will participate in that, who have bought an NFT, who have is there like a you need an application process or you said you've kind of gotten around the Anon thing to some extent with some testing you're doing. Are there, are there other qualifications they have to do to become members or, or can you make it, Hey, you bought this NFT, give us your discord username and you're a member of our cooperative. Yeah, no, typically, you know, it's, it's a COA voluntary association, right? It's actually one of the principles of cooperatives as a voluntary association. So you need to opt in, you need to join, you need to go through a, a membership application process. So you have the eligibility and then you have the process to make sure okay. that you are eligible and that you're accepted as a member. Okay. Very cool. Then, so go ahead. I was just going to say that and you can have various qualifications to membership, right? So you would have potentially, if you bought an NFT, you would have to continue to hold that NFT or stake it, you know, whatever it is, or you could, you know, the, the tokenomics in a co-op in a DAO call could be fairly complex and nuanced. So you can have 
everything from just a, a membership NFT to an actual, you know, token that has some kind of stored value to like a patronage token that's tied, to, that's used as a unit of account for all the patronage activity. That's really what we're seeing a lot and mostly advising clients to bifurcate the different types of token utility within, within the co-op. Okay. And, and you were talking earlier about the fact that you could have investor members that are not necessarily active, you know, writing solidity code or providing support or something like that also in underneath the Colorado law as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the LCA allows for investor members, you know, meeting kind of certain investor suitability thresholds, like accredited investors or under, you know, 506B could have up to 35 non-accredited or under 504, you could raise up to, you know, 10, I think it's $10 million now after the, the recent amendments and just not solicit and, and bring in investor members. Awesome. And I think the only cooperative specific limitation there is that because the cooperative is for the members, investors don't have controlling governance rights or distribution. So it's usually limited 49% on, on both ends. Okay. But they could still be gaining, um, are you saying they could not get distributions from the other, like the other members would get? Their, their share of distribution would be limited. To that. So okay. To under 49% below. Right. Got it. Right. Okay. Okay. But they could come in and be an investor, hold an investor NFT membership in the cooperative, receive revenue distributions or profit distributions from the cooperative at some, whatever level you decide that type of member gets. And that's perfectly kind of within the realm of the regulatory framework. Okay. Are there, are there DAOs that we know of now in the space that are set up as cooperatives already? Jackie? Yeah, yeah, you should tell about our first one. Oh, that'd Probably be great. There. Yeah, I mean, our, the, the very first one, I don't know if we're referring to the same one, but the, the first one that made me stumble into the space, it was Opolis and the Employment Commons. So I met John Palmer right. at Consensus and 2018, it was just like a very, very random meeting. And he was like, are you from Colorado? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I'm from Colorado. He's like, how come I don't know you? <laughs> and so and then <laughs> after that, we hatched up this, this employment commons structure and went to the preeminent co-op firm in the country, which is Jason Lawyer PC to bless the structure. But it, it took a good two years of just noodling and then trying to think of the best way to to create a model and a framework that is you know existing and that really fits these these this this decentralized structure as well so i think we formally launched in in 2020 as the employment commons lca if you don't know much about it you should really check it out it's allows for sovereign and independent workers to basically gain all of the benefits in terms of payroll and healthcare that you would as a w2 so the employment commons acts as a decentralized employment organization and after you set up if you have a single member llc that's taxed as an s corp you can join as a member you you know get kind of it's kind of like a a decentralized gusto so they run your payroll you get access to benefits, and then you also accrue work tokens, which is based on annual volume of, of payroll that's consumed through the network. It's, it's pretty cool. I remember, 
and nice. uh, the Board of Stewards. And they're doing a great job on the on the biz dev front with that with that uh, with that operation because I've seen them all over the place. So that's impressive. And so essentially, it's a it's a way for individuals who may be freelancers or who may be working as developers in the space who are not you know technically employed by someone to be able to have all the benefits of employment along with the federal filing for tax purposes, health insurance, etc., without having to go through. Uh, being a regular employee, they can still kind of maintain their independence and their freedom, but get all of the benefits through this cooperative, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. And that, I can see why that would have taken a long time because that's not just the cooperative, that's the cooperative and the employment law and the, all of this other stuff that goes around with it. That's, that's pretty complex. Are there other DAOs in the space that are doing cooperative type setups that we might know about that you can talk about? Though I figured I should probably have looked a little earlier because I haven't talked publicly about them in a while. So the, the one that comes to mind is Sangha Dao with Jonathan Men, who has who puts out a song a day, make them into NFTs and you purchase the NFTs you become eligible to become a member in there. And I think the goal is to be able to share into some royalties revenue, however, that becomes based on participation. So as a member, if you help the music to be heard somewhere that generates any, some revenue that kind of benefits the entity or the DAO and that the members get to participate in that. That said, I haven't talked to him, but you know, I, I don't know what's the, the stage of development of members and member participation, but that's a, a pretty fun one. And one that I expect to see more once the market is at a better place. I think we stopped seeing those more are driven ones of being formed at least on our end since the market got a little geeky. Yeah. Well, I, I need just... to say something. I re realized I am not licensed in Colorado. I do practice with my colleagues that are all licensed there and cooperative is my area of expertise for the past five years now. And I do agree with you. Colorado law is pretty awesome. But the agencies in Colorado are actually one of the, the biggest success. I think they are just extra supportive of those types of entities. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Let me hit my questions here. Make sure I haven't missed it. Oh, so what, what's the process like, right? Like, I, I mean, I know everyone's different and, and I get that. Like that's the song Dow one sounds really cool. And I hope they can kind of get through this bear market because that to me is the kind of innovation that I think has a, has a bigger play in kind of the whole music space. So I love seeing those folks that are early and if they can survive this crunch, it'd be really cool to see them come out the other side with that kind of a model with a cooperative around it. That'd be very cool. What, so what's involved in setting up a cooperative? Like if I came to you with something we're working on and said, Hey, I'd really like to get a cooperative around it. What, what are the steps you all would go through with me to, to, to kind of frame that and make sure we're setting it up correctly and doing everything in the right way? Yeah. I mean, we typically start down the path of like a, a design session. You know, there are a lot of questions on how to structure governance, how to different membership classes, what the revenue model looks like, whether we will start with some kind of like seed parent or affiliate entity that will, you know, basically act as kind of like the founding member in the, in the co-op. So the process is a lot of like discussion around design. And then once we have a better idea of the framework and, you know, more importantly, I think that, that, that these groups are, you know, the people that come to us really understand how co-ops work and, and confirm that this is really the right 
framework for them. Then we get to drafting, which usually takes three, four, five weeks or so. And yeah, and then you have a co-op. <laughs> so is it kind of a, a, you know, but I think it's, you know, sometimes just important to know kind of time-wise as well, how, how well what's going to be involved. Yeah. And is this kind of a typical, is it, is it look and smell kind of like a typical operating agreement? Is it kind of bylaws? Is it, you know, and then it's just a registration form at the state of Colorado, you know, is that the whole process that you're really working through with people is, okay, how do you want us to be managed? What would the revenue sharing be like? What are the, are there dues, are there expenses, that kind of thing? Is those the kinds of things you kind of hammer through? And then I'm assuming the governance stuff gets a little complex. Yeah. So we do, that's part of the, a lot of this is part of the design process. We kind of identify how do you define your membership and all that, all that goes into the bylaws. So essentially you file articles of organization with the Colorado Secretary of State or the, the state or other states. We haven't seen too much elsewhere, but then bylaws, which are private, you know, then those are uh, private documents that may or may not be shared by the kind of organizing group. And then membership agreement based on the number of different classes that you might have there. We have, I started seeing a few articles being filed by folks that are probably not represented by attorneys and then we'll have them reach out to us a few <laughs> months later to can we like figure out our bylaws i started seeing some of those and i now tell you the problem with that is that if you don't have a set of bylaws and you don't have membership agreements you cannot admit members into your entity that's just it's a right. running entity but you cannot there isn't a possibility for that so it's it's really important to put in paper the how you, you know, how you organize the relations in between the members, among the members, and in between the members and, and the entity as well. So in other words, just filing the form that, hey, I'm a cooperative does not make you a cooperative. That's right. Okay. Very cool. What other things, if you were going to advise a client to think about this, you've educated them, you know, kind of what are the things you make them really think about? Like, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of these folks are coming to you saying, okay, can I, if, if I'm, if I'm exempt from securities regulations, that means I can you know, go out and release a token and go crazy and everything will be great. And we'll all be rich. I, I'm assuming there are things that you, these people all need to really think about kind of where their motives were for what they were launching versus why they're setting up a cooperative structure. And it's almost like culturally there's a specific type of group that should really fit into this. And there's, there's an, like, you know, I always ask founders, are, are, did you come into crypto as a mercenary or a missionary? And, and, and sometimes it's a mix, but most of the time it's either, oh, I came in to make a lot of money and then I became a missionary or whatever. But I would assume that there's a class of folks in this space that are never going to fit into a co cooperative world. But I wonder about kind of the this process that founders go through, right? Often these organizations are driven by, you know, one or two people who are very ego driven or very mission driven, and they are controlling and doing a lot of the decision-making process. Is that something that, you know, under kind of the idea of a cooperative, they really have to give up some of that, or can they still be a guiding force behind, you know, most of the decisions of the, of the entity? Yes. I mean, I think we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of mission driven groups, actually ones that, you know, can, can take advantage of both. So they're finding ways to, to have a sustainable project business with, you know, recurring revenue. And at the same time, 
they are community focused. They're finding ways, you know, this, this exit community concept is, is always top of mind of how can we reward the broader contributors and, you know, are we ready to, to launch, to be able to do that? And how do we have good governance? I mean, I think that this is, it's really a beautiful thing that we're seeing. So we're not, nice. the people who are in it for the money grab, I think tend to not or tend, tend to not be drawn to cooperatives or any kind of legal structure. So, sure. you know, we, I guess we've, we've locked out so far. That's cool. And do you feel like a lot of the, I mean, there are a lot of very community oriented DAOs out there functioning without any legal structure. Mm -hmm. And I'm an assumption, my assumption would be that the, the initial founders, if they've released a token and, and have kind of just gone with it, have some legal exposure from a liability perspective if there was never any entity formed because they now become liable as general partners, if I'm not mistaken, and have put themselves in a real bind, no matter how much they say, this is a community DAO and, you know, we're decentralized and anything else. The fact is, is whoever kind of formed it and started it and started selling tokens probably has some liability there. Are there ways for existing DAOs that have been set up to kind of move into this and kind of hope for the best that, <laughs> that they don't get sued or they don't have issues later on. I mean, would you recommend that the kind of functioning running DAOs start looking at setting up a cooperative structure as well, rather than continuing to kind of hope for the best? Jackie? No, I, well, you know, I, I don't think that everything that, you know, every good project is not necessarily fit for a cooperative. I think you're right about motivations to bring Gordon in, which there was a wave. Sometimes there, there's still, I guess, with the securities aspect. But more often than not, the project itself, even if the initial motivation to go toward the cooperative model is one that is maybe taxation related, it's maybe securities related, This the, a lot of the projects actually do fit the model and, and aren't either decentralized enough or want to benefit all the participants in it. it in those cases, yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of hard to see very founder driven. The, the thing with cooperatives, there's a mindset, right? And it requires, there's some research. I should know better about that data, but that if you start with three folks, you are more likely to operate as a cooperative or in a cooperative mindset because it's like less founder, the two of us were doing this together versus we have to compromise a little bit more. And I, I, with the groups we've worked so far with, as Yev mentioned, we've been lucky that they have worked out really well. There are some, that Yev have some of those clients that are not cooperatives and that's fine as well. No, that makes sense. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. Are there mechanisms that these groups have to think about from the perspective of, you know, members that are not participating and not engaging and not providing value to the cooperative? Is there kind of a standard process that people go through in the governance process to say, we got to boot this guy out? Or is it something where once they're a member, you're better off just continuing to pay them their share, even though they're not really participating and, and providing value to the overall cooperative? Yeah. Well, that's one of the, I'll start with that one because I, yep. I really like that. It's the one of the advantages of cooperative. If you're not participating, you're not engaging in patronage, you're not going to get anything out of it. So you're maybe an inactive member. You don't get any benefit out of it. Now, if you're okay. going to be expelled or not, that's a different decision that usually is in the documents. It's, it, it is grounds for expulsion or withdrawal or termination. It doesn't have to, but you also don't get anything out of it. Cool. 
right. You know, I, I, I frankly, I, I have a hard time seeing why we're not hearing about more DAOs doing this. I know you all are working behind the scenes with a lot of projects, but I, I'm just, I'm, I'm grasping at straws for why more people, maybe it's just a PR issue, but it just to me seems like such an awesome solution to a problem that almost every project in the space that claims to want to go to progressively decentralized, that this helps to solve. And it also is an interesting model. You know, a lot, a lot of work is being done right now in research and study about governance models in, in DAOs. And I think that a cooperative structure actually almost forces the issue into a more workable approach. And I would think that actually there's, there's some real reverse benefits back to DAO governance to, from the lessons to be learned from cooperatives. And, you know, people talk all the time about people that are fed up with DAOs. There's this kind of segment in the DeFi space that are complaining and moaning that DAOs suck and they're, they're no good. And, and we need boards of directors and we need, you know, after hundreds of years of corporate structure, we should know how this works. Well, the fact is, is that there have been hundreds of years of kind of cooperative structures, whether they were officially corporate cooperative structures or not. And they do have a system that has worked for a very long time. So it seems to me that that's where the lesson should be coming from, from for these DAOs that want to be for profit is that there's an incredible opportunity to learn from all the history of cooperatives in the space. So I, I, I think it's really an interesting thing that, that we're not seeing more of that happening. I know there was a little bit of a craze there for a while and you all couldn't breathe because your phones were constantly ringing. And I know you have plenty of work and you're exhausted as it is, but it, it seems to me that this is something that the DAOs should be thinking about more. Are you, are you hearing from people in the space that are kind of thought leaders that, you know, on the, on the governance structure side, you know, there's all these experts in governance structure or people who are writing a lot of research reports about governance structure. Are they even looking at DAOs in terms of kind of the research they're doing? Or have you run into any of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at some of the work that Nathan Schneider has put out, he's been he was he's been working with Gitcoin, and and I think he wrote the forward to some book that they put out recently. Probably everybody knows about it, but I can't that on the tip of my tongue. The Ready and Murmur have really been pushing some of the the fold on kind of the future of work in DAOs, and I think they're doing great things. Jackie probably knows more about them. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of thought leadership in this space, especially around like co-ops and, and, you know, kind of galvanizing around some of the things that we're building. So yeah. Yeah. I'd, um, I'd love to hear Vidalik to talk about it a little bit because that would drive a ton of interest. Have you guys, are you all familiar with this, the blockchain metas? So yes, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, the interesting thing about them, and I, and I've kind of wondered about about this, and I know this can't be an automated process. I get that, but the Metis blockchain, uh, Vitalik's mom is actually one of the top leaders on the team. And it was formed and built around the model that he espoused for DAOs, but which he calls decentralized corporate organizations. And they have built into that, that blockchain the ability for anyone to come in and actually create the technological infrastructure for these DCAs. It would seem to me that a chain like that, a project like that, that's a layer two to Ethereum would be a great candidate for kind of pushing people who are forming these organizations into a cooperative structure. And I, I was just curious if you'd heard of them or not. The, the, the CEO I've, I've interviewed, and I may bring this up to her because I think, 
I, I'd really love to see this being pushed from a technology perspective, but also on another level. There's a company called, a project called Vote with Tally, and Dennison Bertram is running kind of their, da- he run, he's a founder of the company, but he's, he's running their push to really provide tools for DAOs. And he's constantly talking about the fact that if you haven't formed an entity, you're liable, you know, <laughs> I think he thinks, says things like you're going to jail or you're getting sued or whatever it is. And so I think there are enough people that are pushing kind of, hey, we need a structure, but I don't think enough people are completely aware of this yet. And I guess I'm giving a speech because I don't really have a question, but maybe you have thoughts about it and and kind of outreach into the space and how we get more people thinking about these types of structures. Jackie? Yeah, I, I agree. No, I agree. Okay. I think there is, you know, with the cooperative, I guess, legal industry and even cooperative developers, kind of more traditional, there's still some hesitation because it is perceived as an investor-driven industry. There, there are things like that that we'll hear sometimes within the traditional cooperative practice. So there aren't a ton of cooperative practitioners that have incorporated Web3, blockchain, just kind of next step of cooperative development and still are struggling. So I think there's, but there's interest and folks are starting to look into like us with the, pre, the, the values approach is do those values kind of align with what we're trying to accomplish? Okay, so this is just a cooperative with different tooling. The, there are challenges that we're seeing, I think on both, I think you sort of pointing out on organizing cooperatives is still, it is one of the kind of, I don't want to say drawback, but maybe it is that it takes a lot of organizing, it's human organizing interactions. And also being online might have facilitated, might facilitating some aspects, being in person may have for some cooperatives, but it still takes a lot of work to make that happen as a community. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing some of those that are kind of, you know, slower decentralization or kind of phased because it takes time organizing. And if you start with a bigger group. It takes time formalizing. So it's kind of, you, you find yourself in between those. Yeah. So starting off with the first three people is probably a better idea than waiting until you have 150 people in the, in the organization. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're right? a event. Yeah. That definitely <laughs> makes sense. I guess I would just add that, you know, co-ops in the past have there's been criticism about just kind of stagnation in terms of participation. And to me, what DeFi has brought to co-ops is really kind of that next level in terms of tools for incentivization, right? Through tokens, through liquidity, through, I mean, generally the DeFi space has has changed kind of the, the traditional corporate model in terms of incentivizing contribution, participation. So, yeah, I mean, I think kind of these tokens as tools to to create more patronage activity, to create more value in the, the general network is, is pretty profound. Do you, are you really advising clients that there should not be a standard token or coin involved and that these primarily should be NFT based cooperatives, or is that something that's still possible to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So a coin or a token can be possible to be issued as long as they're not like doing the actual listing on exchanges or providing yeah, liquidity. A lot, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things that they shouldn't be doing, but yeah, I mean, it's still very possible to to release a coin or a token. Okay. And is it is it something that has to be kind of utility focused or if it can be part of the profit of the cooperative, it's okay because it's 
part of the co it's used in the cooperative in some way or in the products in some way? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. So that's, you know, the tokenized patronage, I think that that really works well. And there's also, you know, use cases for there to be secondary markets for those patronage tokens. I think generally the safer bet is obviously to stay with utility tokens that have some kind of consumptive value or use within the kind of the, the closed loop system. But I mean, I think we've seen a lot of variations and other types of tokens that have, have been issued you know, for depending on kind of where the, they fall within that security spectrum. Okay. My last question about cooperatives, do you see the technological capabilities of, of DAOs and governance that is happening in DeFi potentially bleeding over into non-crypto cooperatives? Like, is there a, is there a, is there a model where some of the old, other non-crypto oriented companies are actually using tokens and DAO structure type governance to fill, to book, to actually manage and run their cooperatives that they're setting up in the, you know, real world. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I understood it correctly. Yeah. I think some already either cooperatives that are already running or are kind of real world cooperative with real assets or, you know, stores, we're going to start seeing some just kind of stores online or otherwise that are adopting blockchain and adopting DeFi tools. So we are, some of them very traditional, actually cooperatives and just, they were running their good life as a, a good, you no, know, how do I call it, kind of second layer cooperative and, or second stage that's more traditional and they will just adopt. And some of them are kind of somewhat native to Web3, but also that have real, real world of world operations and is starting to kind of find themselves as hybrids. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly see that the automations, the tools, the smart contracts could be beneficial to management and running of a traditional cooperative. So I, it'll be interesting to see if that starts bleeding over more into it. Plus the financial management of it, I think is made easier that way as well. So that's cool. Anything else we should know? about the regulatory world, about cooperatives, about DeFi, about DAOs that you all are running into, or did we cover all the bases of everything anybody should know about a cooperative? I'm kidding, but anything <laughs> else you want to- We've already got a ground though, and I think that, you know, you're right. It's such a, such a compelling legal structure that we really think that more people should be using it. So please come and find us on Twitter, come and email us, we can talk about it all day. Cool. I'll put your Twitter handles and website in the, in the show notes. Oh, I traditionally ask everyone that comes on the show, is there someone in crypto or DeFi or a project or a person that you admire or you think is really important to kind of the future of the space? Jackie, you want to go first? Yeah, I think, what's her name? Magenta is doing a very interesting project with Bloom Network. She's on Twitter. She's active. She's talking about some of her project. That's the one that comes to mind right now. Cool. Yeah. I'll mention some people who are mostly working kind of in the shadows on a lot of these grassroots DAOs. So there's a woman by the name of Ilona Shevchenko. She started working on Free Ross DAO. She's been working on Ukraine DAO and Choice DAO that they've just started. And she works tires tirelessly around the clock in, you know, these kind of crowdsourced policy efforts. And she's just been doing an amazing nice job so i give her a lot of credit and kudos and she's probably not somebody who you'll see you know awesome 
the list of all those other big names that we know, but she's amazing. That's great. Would you send me her info if she's on Twitter or, or, or wherever yeah, where I can see info about her? Mm-hmm. I'll put a link in there. That's cool. And you were talking, I, we didn't get to it because we're running out of time, but I know you were talk wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what you've been doing in Ukraine and, and, and I, I, I don't know if you really quickly want to talk about that because I, I think it's important work. Yeah. I mean, please check out Unchain DAO and Ukraine DAO. We're currently planning a, a hackathon in Kiev and trying to gain more awareness. You know, there's been a lot of ebbs and flows in terms of engagement with, with the situation in Ukraine. It started off really strong and raised a lot of, a lot of money that was deployed exactly where it should have gone directly into the hands of those that need it and did a lot of kind of humanitarian work out there. But there is a lot of I guess we're trying to really combine a lot of the talent that exists in that region, gain awareness, and then we also create products and tools that can be used in, in conflict and war situations for the long term. So awesome. please, please check it out. Where should they go to check that out? Twitter is great. Okay. Uh, Discord, and then it's ukrainegow.log. Great. Now check it out. That's awesome. The some of the nicest and most talented people I've ever worked with in tech were all from Ukraine. So I will do what I can to help. That's awesome. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for educating us. I'll probably get this out to next Tuesday or Wednesday, but really appreciate it. I'm really glad we could connect and do this. And thanks for coming. Thank you for having thanks, me. Thanks for what you're doing. Drag us kicking and screaming into the cooperative world. <laughs> yeah.